All right, so Isaiah 30. We're, we're working through the book of Isaiah. We'll, we'll take a pause for the next couple of weeks to let the guys who are preaching not have to preach Isaiah because it's not the easiest book to just jump into the middle of. Um, so they're going to preach what the Lord puts on their hearts. Um, but we're, we're going to get through this last chapter and um, the, this ch- chapter 30, rather, this last one for a couple of weeks, I should say. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this one. This, I, I don't know, I'm not super familiar with Isaiah. I mean, obviously I've read it many times, but I didn't really absorb it as, as you do when you're studying it to, to teach. And uh, man, this one is just really great. I couldn't believe I didn't really know about it too much until this week or so. And um, basically where we're at, just so we're all kind of on the same page, is Isaiah's message is really simple. It's that God saves sinners. That's what, he, that's what he does. And so the whole message of Isaiah is this call to the people of Israel, this rebellious people who are in covenant with God, but are rebelling against him um, and really don't know him to, to hear from Isaiah over and over again that God wants to save you and that God can save you and that God will save you if you trust in him. And that's the message of Isaiah as a, as a whole. Um, now, we're in a particular section of the book, uh, chapter, uh, I believe it's 26 or so through 35, is a, is a section of Isaiah where Isaiah's message, or really the Lord's message through Isaiah's uh, pen and, and, and mouth as he preaches these things, is that God has the power to save. That it's not just that he wants to save, even though that's true. It's not just that he could save but that he has the power to save and will save his people. That's the message of Isaiah. And so in Isaiah 30, we're going to see this once again, this beautiful picture of the power of God at work in in the people who will trust in him. So let's look at um, this. There's really three general sections of of the chapter. The first seven verses... Uh, deal with one thing, and then we go from uh, really the first 11 verses, and then chapter uh, verse 12 through 18, and then 19 through 33. So we'll just take those kind of one at a time. But let's read 1 through 7 to start here, because this sets up the whole, the whole message for this chapter. It says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. So God is speaking to the people of Israel here, and he's saying to them, you are a bunch of stubborn children. And they really are. And all of us who are rebelling against the Lord can be categorized that way. They're stubborn children, and the reason that they're so stubborn is because they have carried out a plan but it's not the Lord's plan. They've made an alliance, but not of the Lord's spirit. They've chosen to take matters into their own hands. They have decided to save themselves. That's what's happening. They've decided that they know better than God, that they can carry out this plan, that they can do what they want to do in it, and that the Lord's, uh, the, the Lord's you know, will and plan, and his spirit is not relevant. So let's look at their plan, verse 2 through 7. 
who set out, these rebellious children, set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, the shelter of the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. An oracle on the beasts of the Negeb, though through a land of trouble and anguish, from where comes the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent? They carry their riches on the backs of donkeys, their treasures on the humps of camels, to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. So their plan is to go to Egypt, which if you know anything about biblical history, this is an insane idea because Egypt was who enslaved Israel for 400 years. This is like, if there's an enemy number one for Israel, it's Egypt. Like, historically, they're not friends with Egypt. Egypt was their enemy, and God had to rescue them out of the hands of the Egyptians. That's what the whole book of Exodus is about, right? At least the first half of it is about that. So here you have these people who are in Isaiah's day, now hundreds of years removed from the the Exodus story, but what they're doing is they're going back to them, believing that Pharaoh and his protection is better for them than the Lord's. Believing that if, if we can align with Egypt in this military thing against Assyria, then we'll be saved. See, now they're, they're dealing with this issue with Assyria, right? And Assyria is a big, bad enemy. Assyria is um, this superpower of the day. It was by far the most powerful nation around. And Assyria is on their doorstep. And the Lord has actually warned them already in the book of Isaiah that Assyria is going to come for them. And so they're freaking out. And they decide, we're going to make a plan. It's not the Lord's plan, but we're going to make a plan and we're going to go to Egypt. So here's what's happening. The people of Israel are taking matters into their own hands. They're trying to save themselves from the, com- from the coming uh, storm of Assyria's invasion. They're doing the natural thing, right? They're doing the thing that makes the most sense from a, from a military standpoint, from, a, uh, from the standpoint of, you know, a human perspective. But the Lord is confronting them on this and saying, no, 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 this is stubbornness. This is recklessness. This is, this is going to kill you in the end. He says, Egypt's help is worthless in verse 7. He says, I've called them Rahab who sits still. So Rahab is a story from the book of Joshua, right? She, she was a, a, a Canaanite prostitute in uh, uh, Jericho, I believe, if I'm not mistaken here. And, and the spies of Israel came in to decide how to handle this. And the, they were kind of found uh, or at least discovered that they had broken into the city. And so Rahab hides them and she, she trusts the Lord uh, to, to protect her in the midst of that. She lies to the soldiers, uh, telling them that 
hey, you know, these Israelites aren't here. I don't know what you're talking about. But in doing that, she saves their lives. And in turn, she, she makes it possible for Israel to conquer their enemies. And so now you have that history of Rahab being of, of help. But at the same time, uh, now you have Egypt that they believe is going to do the same thing. But God says, no, no, this is not going to be another Rahab situation. This is going to be a Rahab who sits still and does nothing because they're worthless. In other words, I think what the Lord is saying to us, because we're not, you know, we're not necessarily thinking, oh, we'll just make an alliance with Egypt. Right? That's, not your, that's not your deal today. Um, that's not what you're thinking about today. But what, what is the issue? The issue is, it gets deeper to the heart of it, which is not just that we're, they're making a deal with Egypt. The real issue is that they're not trusting in the Lord and they're trying to save themselves. And we do that all the time. We do that all the time. We, we believe in our, in our sinful hearts, we believe that somehow we can figure out a better way than God. And so the Lord is speaking to us today as much as he was speaking to them then. The issues are different. The ways in which we try to save ourselves are different than theirs, but they are still the same at, at the heart of it. So they've made this now foolish attempt to save themselves. And the Lord is going to tell them in verse 8 through 11 where this whole concoction of uh, self-saving comes from, where it stems from. Look at, look at these verses, 8 through 11. It says, And now go and write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, Leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. So the problem here stems from their unwillingness to hear what God has to say to them. It stems from shutting out God's voice for voices that agree with them. And this is what happens to all of us when we are in rebellion. We are shutting out what God has to say and replacing them with voices that we like to hear. We, we see this in the New Testament as well. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 3, Paul writes to Timothy and says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. That's sound meaning solid, right, biblical. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions. We, we see this happening, and this is what's where, whenever we walk away from what the Lord has for us, it always begins with not hearing his word and instead replacing his word with the voices of others. And, and we, here's the thing, we need to be careful about our echo chambers. We all have them, right? We all have echo chambers where we just like to hear what we agree with, right? We, you tend, and I tend, we all do, uh, to find sources of news that agree with our particular biases. 
right? We, we all tend to find sources of information that we inherently agree with. We don't like to be pressed or challenged to think differently about matters. And that's, I mean, to some degree, that's very human, very natural. Everyone does it. Everyone does it, right? There's no, there's no unbiased person in the world completely. Um, so we need, but, but here's the thing. When we're dealing with what God has to say, and we decide to just say, I don't like that, so I'm going to hear this instead, that's where things begin to go very wrong. We need to make sure that we're hearing God's voice and not just the voices we want to hear. That's where there uh, in Israel, in Isaiah's day, that's, that's what's stemming or leading to all of this uh, plan hatching that is not of the Lord's spirit. It's because they refuse to listen to him. It's because they don't want to hear what he has to say. And in fact, tell the prophets, like Isaiah, don't prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Tell us things that we like to hear, that we want to hear. It's the same thing Paul says about having itching ears and so finding teachers that will do that for us. We need to take great caution at that. So there's the problem, right? The, the, the issue at hand is we try to save ourselves, but only God can actually save us. The help that we try to find is worthless. And, and if we don't uh, return to the Lord and hear his voice and do the things that he's calling us to do, we are going to end up way worse than when we started. So let's keep going here because now, now that God has set up the issue, now he's going to tell us what the solution is. Verse 12 through 18. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel. Right now, what they had just said to him is, we don't want to hear anything else from you. Don't tell us anything else about the Holy One of Israel. That's what the people are saying to the prophets. So because that's what they say, therefore, here's what God says. Because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore, the iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly at an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found and which to take, with, with which to take uh, fire from the earth or to dip water out of the cistern. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. Here, here we go, ready? In returning and rest you shall be saved. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. And you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. And you said, we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore, 
the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. This is, um, this is tough love, right? This is what the Lord is saying. He's, t- he's telling them on one hand, I'm not going to fool around with you and, and make you believe that you guys have a good idea here. He goes on to tell them, like, you guys keep pursuing this. You're going to end up like a breach in a high wall that collapses. You're going to end up like a potter's vessel, a piece of pottery that is smashed so ruthlessly that you can't even find a shard of the pottery left. It's like going this route is going to lead to you being ruined. So here's God's call. In returning and in rest, you will be saved. He's saying, come back to me. It doesn't have to be like this. It doesn't have to end this way. You can come back to me. You, you can come back and be saved. But, but notice this. This is really huge. I saw this and I, I'm blown away by how much the gospel is in Isaiah. It's amazing. It says, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Not in returning and working will be your salvation. No, in returning and in rest you will be saved. In quietness, it'll be your strength. In other words, what God is telling his people is this, that you guys are working furiously to save yourselves. You're working, you're, you're trying to get these Egyptians to be on your side. You're, you're, you're working hard to get what you think is going to save you, but in the end, it won't save you. So here's where, what will. Come back to me and don't work for it. Just rest. We don't have to work to get to God in the salvation he offers us. In fact, if we do, we won't get to God. What we have to do is rest in him. Find our rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I I actually saw this um, paralleled with the prodigal son story. Just, y'all know this probably, and I've talked about it a lot here. I think it's one of the best parables Jesus tells to help us understand the dynamics of salvation. But here's the thing, right? In the prodigal son story, you, you know, he runs away from home. He takes his dad's money. He squanders it, finds himself in a pig pen eating pig food, which is the worst of the worst imaginable for, for a Jewish audience to hear. And, and then when he's in the pig pen, he wakes up from his idiotic, you know, b- beliefs and decides, I'm going to go home to my dad. I'm going to return to my dad. And, and if you remember the speech that he plans, this, this apology that he plans out, the apology was this. I'm going to go and say to my dad, I'm sorry, I don't deserve to be your son. Make me one of your servants. And there, there was some real humility in that, right? That he, he didn't uh, assume that he was going to get his position as a son back. He knew that he blew it. And he, he said, I don't even need to be a son. I, I'll just be a servant in his house, and that's better than where I'm at. But, but what's amazing in this is that when he gets to his father, really when his father gets to him, right? He, he gets to a certain point, and his father sees him, and he runs to him. When the father runs to embrace his son, 
he begins his speech, but before he gets to the part where he basically let, invites himself to be a servant, the father doesn't even let him get there. He cuts him off. And he says, no, 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 you're my son. Put the robes on him, put the shoes on him, put the ring on him, let's have a party. He doesn't repent by saying, I'm going to work for you. I'm going to work back my way into your good graces. The father doesn't even let him do that. What the father does is he cuts him off and says, you're, you're in, you've come back. This is what Isaiah is talking about is we return to him and we're welcomed home. There's no working involved. There's resting. There's rejoicing. There's the welcoming arms of the father. He calls his rebellious children to come home, but he calls them home with compassion, not with, hey, you got to work. You got to make amends. You got to fix this. It's not how it works with the Lord. Because salvation is never about what we do. It's always about what he has done for us. And so this message is that the Lord is saying to his children, I want you to come home and that's all I want. I want you to come back to me. He then tells them again in verse 16 um, and 17 what their response is going to be. Look at the response. Really, at the end of verse 15, he says, but you were unwilling. You weren't willing to just come home and rest in my strength. You weren't willing to just come home and receive my mercy. You were unwilling to do that. And you said, no, we're going to flee on horses. We're still going to try to save ourselves. We're going to get our horses packed up. We're going to go to Egypt We're going to bring our donkeys and our camels and all the other things that they had, right? We would say, load up the car. We're going to Egypt, right? They they didn't have cars. So they're loading up their animals. They're going, and they're like, this is what we're going to do. And God said, okay, that's what you're wanting. This is what's going to happen. Uh, You're never going to find rest. You're going to be constantly chased. You will be chased. You'll be pursued, and you will flee. This is not going to lead to peace. He's telling them flat out what's going to happen to them. But then look in verse 18. This is incredible that even though they're unwilling to come back to him, how does God respond? He says, therefore, because because you're unwilling to come back, here's how I'm going to respond. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. He, He exalts himself in showing mercy to you. The Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. The Lord says, you know what? I'm just going to wait for you. I'm going to wait for you to come home. And thank God he does. He doesn't just kill us when we deserve to die. (laughs) He waits for us. He allows us to be stupid, but he also draws us back to him. He says, I'm I'm waiting to be gracious to you. This shows the patience of God. What a patient God. This should give you, this shouldn't give you like this idea that goes, oh great, God's going to wait for me so I'll just get all my sin out. This should compel you to not want to break his heart because of how much he loves us. 
This is why Paul says that grace doesn't uh, call us to sin, you know, continue to sin. Grace, uh, understood properly, should compel our hearts to love the Lord because of how unworthy and undeserving we are of this mercy. The people of Israel did not deserve the Lord to sit by and wait for them to be gracious to them. But that's the character of God. Now, in the last section of the book, or the chapter rather, um, 19 through 33, which is a pretty long section, um, we won't read through all of it because I want to get to the New Testament and show us some things there. But um, the point of these verses, and what God's going to say to them is this, that God will ultimately be the one who saves them. He's still dealing with people who think that they can save themselves and think that if they can just get Egypt to help them with this Assyria problem, then they're, then they're good. God's going to say to them, no, no, no. You're gonna, your whole plan is going to fall apart, but I will actually save you. Look at what he says. Verse 19 says, For a people shall dwell in Zion. In Jerusalem you shall weep no more. He, that's the Lord, will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, though, though the Lord does these things and allows you to go through hardship, yet, at the end of the day, your teacher will not hide himself anymore but your eyes will see your teacher. Your ears will hear the word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the left or when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. He's telling them in this first paragraph that, Um, at the end of the day, God will be the one that saves them. And the outcome of God saving them is far greater than any outcome that Egypt could bring. It's going to be this uh, beautiful picture of living with the Lord, having him wipe away our tears, having him be our God who comforts us and gives us all that we need and tells us how to live. And when he does that, when he gets into the heart when he gets down to the, to the root of all this, we will, we will throw away all those false gods that we're clinging to. Their false gods were overlaid with silver and gold. Yours probably aren't. Mine aren't. But they, but they are still, we still have idols. An idol is really anything that, that we cling to to satisfy us and fulfill us. And obviously as human history has gone on and things have changed in, in uh, the, out, you know, the outworking of this stuff. It's no longer little statues that we worship, but it is still uh, those things that we try to replace God with. We're going to throw those things away at the end of the day. He tells them that he's going to provide for them in 23 through 26, about providing rain for the seed and providing uh, what they need to, to have all their needs met. And, and then you, you'll see here, in verse 29 uh, through 33, he's really talking about how he's going to bring this 
this hammer down on the Assyrians, right? Which is the, the issue at hand is the Assyrian invasion. That's what they're making an alliance with Egypt about. So even in that historical moment, God is saying, no, no, I'm going to take care of the Assyrians. You just wait and see. But the spiritual message behind all of this, because we're not sitting here in the same position as they are on a military level or a national level, but, but we have a great enemy as well. And that enemy is sin. And that enemy needs to be defeated. And what God is promising through this, this message to the Assyrians is just as he's going to destroy the Assyrians, he's going to destroy sin as well through the finished work of Christ. And so that's really the, the message of Isaiah 30, that he, we, we are rebellious children who try to save ourselves. The Lord intervenes with this call to come home to him. And as we do, we will experience his rest and his fulfillment in all of this. But again, we're, we're reading this thing and we might, th- we might be tempted to think, this has nothing to do with me because this is about Israel and their military and Assyria and Egypt. And this has nothing to do with us. The, but the principles really do. And we see the principles in the New Testament as well. If you flip over to Galatians chapter 1, we actually see this, this paralleled pretty well in Galatians 1. Um, the book of Galatians, Paul is writing to a church that has effectively abandoned the gospel. They've abandoned the, the finished work of Christ as their only hope and salvation. And so he's writing the book to call them back to that. Same thing that Isaiah is calling God's people back to just from a different, different perspective, different angle. And so if we, if we look at this, we'll start in verse 6 just quickly here just to get the, kind of the, the heart of it, and we'll, we'll back up a little as well. But here's what Paul says. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The first thing after his greeting is, I can't believe that you guys are abandoning, deserting the Lord, that you're deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and that you're turning to a different gospel. What is the different gospel that they were turning to in the context of Galatians? Well, you don't see it uh, clearly in these particular verses, but through the context of the book, you see that what they were turning to was their own works to save them. They believed that they had to adhere to certain, uh, you know, traditional ideas and if they didn't, then they weren't saved. And so you, they were basically adding something to Jesus. It wasn't just Jesus saves you. It was Jesus and this saves you. This obedience to some, some law, right? The law of uh, the Old Testament that Jesus actually fulfills. That's the reason why we don't have to follow the law of the Old Testament anymore. It's not because it's worthless, but it's because Jesus accomplished it all. He did it all. It's done. 
It's finished. That's what he said on the cross. His whole life and death and resurrection fulfills the law. And so it's not saying that we don't learn anything from the law. Of course we do. Uh, we, we may learn certain things about how to live and, and do, you know, act in certain ways, but, but we're not obligated to fulfill the law because Jesus did it. And, and whenever we believe that we have to fulfill the law, we've abandoned the gospel. We've made it about something else. And Paul calls them out on this and says, you are deserting. By doing this, you're not just, you know, being wrong about your theology. You're actually deserting God. That's, what he, that's the language he uses. You are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. And you're turning to a different gospel. That word gospel means good news, a, a different message of hope and salvation. Verse 7, he says, not, not that there is another gospel. There isn't a different gospel. There's only one gospel. But there are some people who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that was preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That's strong language. Now, Paul jumps into that pretty much right after his introduction to the to the letter. So you know it's going to just be a tough letter <laughs> to hear because he's just jumping right in. He's going, you guys have abandoned the Lord because you believe you can save yourselves. Then, But what's interesting here is that he actually does define the gospel in verses three through five. Kind of, we, we sort of skip over these, these books or these parts of the New Testament letters because they just sound so formal and right, you've got like, Paul, an apostle from the, from, you know, to, to the church and whatever. Like we, we read, we just sort of read through those and go, eh, whatever. But what's amazing here is that in his introduction to this letter, he defines the gospel. Look at what he says in verse three through five. He says, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the gospel. Let, let's, we can just take it a little bit at a time. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is that God gives you grace, undeserved favor, and he gives you peace, this reconciled relationship with him. That's the outcome of the gospel. That happens through Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. He gave himself up on that cross for our sins in order to deliver us, to save us, from this present evil age. The gospel is that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again to deliver us, to free us, to save us from our sin. And then it says that this was according to the will of God and our Father. This plan to save us was not hatched by you and me. It was God's plan. God did it. God willed it. God accomplished it. 
the same thing that Isaiah is telling us. God saves sinners. God saves sinners through Jesus. And then it shows us the outcome of the gospel. To whom this God deserves all the glory forever and ever. Amen. You would deserve the glory if you could save yourself. But because you can't, because I can't, God gets the glory forever and ever. Amen. We see this message of the gospel in Isaiah. It's amazing. We see their desire to abandon the one who could save them for their own desires to save them themselves. And we see it in Galatians. We see their desire to abandon the Lord's salvation offered to them in Jesus Christ for their own salvation, for their alternative, distorted, twisted, disgusting gospel. And if you don't think that, it, that this bothers God, you, you really need to read Galatians because it bothers God a great deal when we distort his gospel. When we think that we can put our foolish attempts at self-salvation ahead of his accomplished work, that is, a, that is a, an act of spitting in his face. God takes it very seriously. But at the same time, there is redemption and hope because God calls us rebellious, st- stupid children home. And as long as we listen and we go to him, then we're received and embraced. And we, what we get is rest. We don't have to work our way back. We just receive his goodness and grace. This is what the Lord has for us. We, we need to, the, the action steps in all of this is simple. We, we need to recognize the areas in our lives where we try to save ourselves. We need to throw those things away and come back to the pure, finished work of Christ. We need to rejoice and celebrate that he accomplished everything so that we could have his love, acceptance, and grace. He did it all. So let's come to him. Let's come to him. Let's stop trying to fix ourselves and heal ourselves and, and do whatever we have to do. We, we need to give all that's broken in our lives to him for him to do something with it. What is it in your life? I don't know that. I don't know what's in your heart this morning. I don't know what you're dealing with. But whatever it is, the Lord is a great Savior who can bring that to his glory if we give it to him, if we hand it to him, if we walk to him, he'll embrace us with open arms. We'll be reminded of that as we go to the table of communion. That's what we celebrate. We celebrate the finished work of Jesus. What we're reminded of as we go to the table is that Jesus paid it all, that we accomplish nothing of our own salvation. And all we have to do is is worship him in response to his grace. That he died in our place to save us from our sins that his body was hung on the cross, that his blood was shed, that he died a horrible death and endured the wrath of God so that we would never have to and that we could just be accepted and embraced by him through faith. So as you go to the table, be reminded of that. That's why we go to remember his work. And I'm, we're going to do that in just a moment. I'll pray for us here and, and then we'll sing and, and respond. But... Um, but this is a time that we set aside every Sunday to partake of the table. We've got the table back there. We've got one back here. So go to whichever you'd like. Um, I just want to encourage those of you with, with children uh, to go with your children. 
Make sure that you're instructing your children on how to appropriately partake of this. The Bible speaks strongly about the Lord's table. It's not to be taken lightly. Um, And so examine your heart. Be sure that you trusted in Jesus before you go. Go with your children and instruct them as you do. Um, But we'd invite you to go to that table and be welcome to him because he does invite you if if you're his. So with that said, let me pray for us. And then we'll, we'll sing and respond. And uh, any time during the songs, you can go and partake of the Lord's table as you feel ready. Father, thank you for your grace to us today. We thank you for the reminder of Isaiah 30, that you will be gracious to us and that you exalt yourself to show us mercy, that you call us to return and rest and be saved that you remind us that it's in quietness and in trust that we will experience your strength. Lord, will you make us willing? Will you help us to come to you? Will you do the work that only you can do in our hearts? We lift all these things to you and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.